Hi, good afternoon. Welcome to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. My name is Kimberly Flowers, and I direct our global food security work here. I also direct a center-wide initiative on humanitarian assistance called the Humanitarian Agenda. We're grateful for those that are here in person, but we're also grateful to the many that we know are watching us online right now. So we are having a conversation today with Alex DeWall, who's one of the foremost experts on famine, Sudan, and the Horn of Africa. He has published more than a dozen books. He's the executive director of the World Peace Foundation and teaches at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. We're very honored that he has chosen CSIS for the US launch of his latest book, Mass Starvation, The History and Future of Famine. His book is a beautiful combination of academic rigor, political science savvy, and on-the-ground experience. And despite the incredibly depressing title, you'll see that he actually has reasons to be optimistic, because indeed, we are far better off than we were just 30 years ago. One of the primary points that Alex makes in the book is that the key links in the chain leading to famine are always political. As Alex points out, the main, main adversary to famine elimination is political leaders themselves. It's not the growing population, a fluctuating global economy, or a changing climate. Although each of, the, each of those have a role to play, which I'm sure he'll address. I recognize a lot of faces in the room, so I know that you know that last year, 2017, was a pretty bad year in terms of global food security. After nearly a decade of progress, global hunger numbers started to rise. The UN released a report that estimated that 11% of the global population are chronically malnourished, which was an increase of 40 million over 2016. The number of people in need of humanitarian assistance hit unprecedented levels. And as Alex will point out in his books, in his book, famines resurfaced in 2017. The decade-on-decade -decade decline in the number of famines stopped. That phrase, four famines, we all became familiar with, was to increase awareness of the severe food crisis that was happening and is still happening in Somalia, Sudan, Nigeria, and Yemen. The CSIS Global Food Security Project held a number of events on this issue last year, including one with the head of WFO, sorry, I'm combining those, FAO and WFP in June, as well as a panel discussion that Alex was a part of last September. I encourage you to read a piece that I wrote a few months ago called The Four Famines, The Alarm Bells Are Ringing, But Who Is Listening? Well, we know one person who was doing much more than listening, which is Alex DeWall. You know, here in DC, that term thought leader is sort of overly attributed, but it's a description that is, is very apt for someone like Alex, as well as brave thinker or deep intellectual. For 35 years, Alex's research and writing on famine and other humanitarian crisis has sparked new thinking among policymakers, academics, and humanitarians. Alex, the stage is yours. Thank you very much. It's always a, a, a pleasure to be here at, at, at CSIS, and particularly to, to, to launch uh, this book. Now, let me see if I can make this work. Clicker. OK, which is the? OK. OK, let me, okay, let me go back one. OK, let me 
begin by starting by explaining a, a couple of things about the title of, of, of the book. The first is the term starvation. I use the term starvation in, in, in a particular way. The word, the verb starve in my usage is transitive. It's something that people do to one another. When you see someone starving, it hasn't just happened. It is something that has been inflicted on them. The other point that I like to make is, is, is the subtitle, The History and Future of Famine. When I started working um, on this book um, about three years ago, and I started um, uh, compiling a, 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 a data set of uh, of famines together with my uh, indefatigable research assistant, Aditya Saka, who I'm very happy to see here. Um, the, our assumption was that we could write about the history of famines, that we could actually say this scourge of humanity has actually been banished for good. But sadly, during the course of writing, this expectation was, was confounded. Famines made something of a comeback, as we all know. And, and, and therefore, it is also necessary to talk about the, the future of, of famine, which I, I shall do. Now, I open the book with this epigraph, which is from Primo Levi's uh, writing about Auschwitz. And I, I, I will read it out to you. They crowd my memory with their faceless presences. And if I could enclose all the evil of our time in one image, I would choose this image which is familiar to me, an emaciated man with head dropped and shoulders curved, on whose face and in whose eyes not a trace of thought is to be seen. And if you read uh, Primo Levi's book, um, Survival in Auschwitz, he gives huge attention to the experience of hunger, the day-to-day -day travails of what it means to be hunger, and your what it means to be hungry and the obsession that you will have um, with food. It's also striking if we go back to the writing of that period, if we go back to that seminal text by Raphael Lemkin, Axis Rule in Occupied Europe, um, in which he coined the term genocide. In fact, his writings about the Nazi rule gave far more attention to nutritional deprivation and starvation than they did to gas chambers and to uh, execution squads. Because the starvation, hunger, diet was actually one of the major mechanisms of genocide used by the Nazis um, in, in, in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union in particular. And if we go back 75 years, if we go back, let's say, to, to, to 19 end of 1942, even the beginning of 1943, what we would see in terms of the sheer numbers of fatalities of the brought about by the Nazi machine in, in Eastern Europe and, and, and the Western Soviet Union, we would see starvation as the number one cause. And when the Germans launched Operation Barbarossa in 1941, the invasion of the Soviet Union, Integral to it was something called the Hunger Plan. And the Hunger Plan was the intent to starve to death 30 million people in the Ukraine, Poland, Soviet Union in order to free up food supplies, to free up resources for the German army and German settlers who would come in. The Germans, of course, didn't reach that total. 
they killed and starved a million in Leningrad, two and a half to three million Soviet prisoners of war, another million in the Ukrainian cities, etc. They reached maybe six and a bit million, a terrible number, not 30 million. But um, it was a lot harder work than they anticipated, starving tens of millions of people. But had they succeeded, it's possible that instead of very diverse images called to mind by the terms genocide and famine, we would have this one image, this one image of forced starvation. We wouldn't immediately think of, 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 of gas chambers with genocide, and we wouldn't have this type of image. Let me see. The sort of the Google search image that you get of famine, if you put it, if you put it in, which is an image of starving African children and desert landscapes. Now, why deserts have anything to do with famine, I don't know. But nonetheless, somehow, this is the, this is the paradigm that jumps to mind when, when, when famine is mentioned. It's, it, it is associated with natural disaster. Um, the success of my book, I think, could be measured by the extent to which uh, Levy's image supplants this here are the seven key points that I'm going to make in, in, in the next few minutes. Um, first, famines have become somewhat rarer and much less lethal. They could be ended for good. Um, famines aren't natural disasters, especially today. Famines aren't principally an African phenomenon. Famines are exceptional and multi-causal. They're a sort of vortex where different factors come together. They're nothing to do with overpopulation. They are inflicted. Starvation is transitive. And lastly, and I'll go into this uh, a little bit at the end, there's enough law on the books to outlaw famine, but we just haven't cared enough about it to make it happen. So famines are becoming rarer and less lethal. Um, this is a, a, the number of famines. And here I define famines as the num episodes that kill 100,000 people or more. So the current definition of famine by, used by the UN is not the same as this historic definition that I'm, I'm using. Let me make that clear. This is the number over, over the last century. Um, more fluctuation than decline. But as you go back into history, the, the data are less good. And if we were to go back to the 19th century, there will be many occurrences of famine that didn't, about which we don't have sufficiently good documentation. We had 58 instances in our data set over the, since 1870 when we are confident that a minimum of 100,000 people died. Fluctuation, a bit of a decline. Um, this is the story of famine deaths. And here, I think the, the, the story is much, much clearer. A huge decline. Um, what we see is that in the 100 years to 1970, about 10 million people perished in famines globally every decade. Since the 1970s, the, the death rate has been running at a fraction of that level. Now, there are many problems with the exact estimation of, of famine mortality, particularly as we go back in history, but this is a pretty strong and pretty credible well-grounded story. I mean, the, the, the precise shape of that graph can be contested by demographic historians and should be contested, but the overall shape of it, I think, is, 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 is beyond question. Now, one of the 
key takeaways from that is, is that decline. Um, and that is a tremendous achievement. And the achievement has, um, th there are many authors of that achievement. Um, there are many factors that went into that huge decline in famine mortality, including uh, massive improvement in global public health, the great infectious diseases that killed millions and tens of millions in earlier decades have been reduced, if not eradicated, um, improvements in markets. Um, I would like to point particularly to uh, political changes, and that's a point I will get on to uh, in a little while, and also um, humanitarian action. The, the fact is that over the last 30 years or so, humanitarian action has enormously increased in, in its scope. And the humanitarians are active in places where they never used to be active. When I started my career, humanitarians simply wouldn't go into war zones. Now they do. And also the level of professionalism, the, 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 the capability of saving the lives of children in humanitarian emergencies, of providing water and sanitation and basic public health is far, far greater. So that what we see is, is death rates in emergencies coming down much more quickly um, than they used to in previous decades. So that is a tremendous achievement. It's an achievement of globalization, of the global spread of democracy, of liberalism, and of a sort of liberal humanitarian international. And liberal humanitarians tend to be very poor at congratulating themselves. They tend to be very good at criticizing themselves, at, at, at looking at their failures and shortcomings, and, and not very good at saying, actually, we achieved something. And so this is the positive message. Yes, we did achieve something. And, and I, one of the things that I would, conclusions that I would revisit from my, uh, my book of 20 years ago, Famine Crimes, is I think I, um, I was, Arguably, I would say I'm correct in saying that humanitarians are not good at addressing the political causes of famine. But even if they're not good at addressing those political causes, they're tremendously good at mitigating the human consequences of famine. And, 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 and that's an achievement that I think needs to be recognized uh, and defended. Famines aren't natural disasters, I'm sure. Um, none of you really need to know this, but let me just give some of the, the data that arise from this, this study that can back up this conclusion. This is the, um, the, the, uh, that previous graph, the, the first graph of the numbers of famines and, and what they're associated with. So the, the, the gray is armed conflict, and you'll see, of course, a big peak there in the 1940s with, um, with World War II. Um, the, the, gray, the, the sort of dark gray is emerging from armed conflict, and there's a little blip there, which is Bangladesh in the 1970s. Um, active political repression, this means totalitarian regimes like, like um, uh, Stalin or Mao. And then no conflict or repression. And there, there were quite a few of these in the earlier days. Um, a couple more recently, the one in the 1970s, would be the Maharashtra famine in, in, in India. But overwhelmingly now, we have famines associated with armed conflict. And this um, lack of uh, natural disaster-causing famine and the, and the importance of, of political repression and conflict-causing famine is even more evident when we look at famine deaths, uh, where less than a quarter, and again, those are almost all famines from the 19th century, 
occurred in the context of no conflict or active repression. Active political repression, the largest number, that is a large number of those due to, to Mao's terrible famine of the late 50s, early 60s. Um, armed conflict, uh, also a very large number. Moving on. Famines aren't principally an African phenomenon. Um, oh dear, this is, seems to have <laughs> moved out. It, can, can that screen be adjusted so it can't? Okay. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, about almost 50% of famine deaths over the last 150 years were in China. Um, another 18% were in Eastern Europe and, and the former Soviet Union. Um, uh, another 15 or 16% in South Asia. So overwhelmingly famine deaths over the last 150 years, Asian, secondarily European, Africa, 9.6%. But of course, Africa has, over the last 20 or so years, become the main locus um, of famine. Uh, the Middle East uh, is, is, is now re-emerging as, as, as a place of, of famine, particularly with, with Yemen. This can also be told as a historical story, a story in, in really four acts. The first act from the 1870s until World War I is an act of, of what um, Mike Davis, the geographer, called late Victorian holocausts. The famines that were unleashed by uh, European uh, pe colonial penetration of what was the emerging uh, third world. Famines in South Asia, in, in India, um, uh, in, in China, um, some in, in Latin America, and, and massive destruction uh, unleashed in, in, in different parts of, um, of Africa. And Asia, which is overwhelmingly responsible for the famine deaths, was, was, um, bore the brunt of the late Victorian Holocaust. The second period is the extended World War, which is from here, the 1911 to 1920 period, to the mid-1940s. And here, overwhelmingly, the famines of that period were concentrated in, in East and Southeast Asia, associated with the, the, the Chinese civil wars and, and World War II in the, in the Asian theater. And in, uh, uh, they, they started in, 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 in Europe, it started with the uh, Armenian genocide, the majority of whose victims were, uh, died of starvation. Um, and then famines in, in Russia, the famines inflicted by Stalin on Ukraine in the 1930s, and all the famines of, of, of World War II, of which the Nazi hunger plan was the greatest, but the um, famine in Bengal, uh, caused uh, in part by British policy during that period, was, um, was another, another contributor. The third period, from the end of World War II up to approximately the 1980s, is the, pe the period of, of post-colonial totalitarianism. And there, the, the, the greatest famine of this period stands out, which is the, um, the famine in China, uh, 1958 to 1961, which is in, should be a real peak on this, but because it's spread between two decades, so the peak is blunted. Um, and, uh, probably 25 million people or more perished in, 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 in that famine. But also, um, famine in, 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 in Cambodia un, under the Khmer Rouge, 
uh, in Ethiopia in the 1980s, and, and, and then uh, as a slight anomaly, the North Korean famine of the 1990s. And those famines came to an end with the ending of, of, of totalitarian rule, which of course hasn't completely ended in North Korea. And um, it's not coincidental that there is still risk of famine in North Korea. And then the last period is the complex emergencies of, of Africa and to a lesser extent the Middle East, which um, emerge right uh, at the end, which um, are the ones that we are most familiar with from, um, from the news and the activities of humanitarian agencies, but in historic terms are really a footnote to the great, you know, great and terrible history of, 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 of famine. So point four, famines are exceptional and multi-causal. Famines occur, um, there is no one element that is common to all famines. They are, they, they are very diverse phenomena. They are very singular. And, and they occur, and one way of conceptualizing them is that they occur when many different factors converge. And so I've, I've put a number of factors up here. Forced displacement, poor market infrastructure, war, lack of free media, inequality, failed agricultural policies, high food prices. They don't all need to happen. And there's no single one that is essential. But when enough of these happen, then you can have a famine. So if you look at the Somali famine of 2011, what you had there was a number of factors coming together. You had an agricultural crisis associated with drought, the, the El Nino effect. You had a high global food prices, which were associated with, with, with a great hike in, 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 in um, world food process, prices associated with um, speculation in commodity markets, which was entirely unrelated to factors of, of production. You had war. Uh, you had the, the uh, restriction on humanitarian access by al-Shabaab. You had corruption. And, and then you had the, um, the last factor, which was a, a response that was tragically delayed because uh, international agencies were, um, took many, many months to persuade the, the U.S. administration to find a workaround for the Patriot Act, which meant that uh, food aid to, to Somalia in the critical months was actually reduced for fear that, um, that humanitarian aid might give material assistance to a group on the terrorist watch list. So those factors between them created a sort of the perfect storm that was, um, that was a famine. But one of the factors about the, uh, one of the features of famine is that when, when you have it in extremis, when these factors come together, it's a sort of vortex. They operate differently. The, uh, the late uh, John Rivers, one of the nutritionists who, who, who pioneered the study of, of emergency nutrition in the 1970s, liked to say that the difference between extreme poverty and famine was like the difference between freezing water and ice. There was a change in state. And, and, and those who study famine in detail, the economics of famine, the, the, the politics, the, and above all, the nutrition of famine identify a, a, a sort of change in state. It's like a, a, a vortex where things suddenly get much, much worse when famine occurs. So it, one of the challenges of studying famine and understanding famine is, is, is you need to have all these different elements in view and, and have a knowledge of each one and, and without any one on its own 
being, being, being able to explain um, the, the particular phenomenon that you're looking at. Another way of, 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 of envisioning this and envisioning the, the, the change that has happened over the last 150 years is to use this, this image, which comes from the English historian R.H. Tawney, who um, 90 years ago described the Chinese peasant as a man standing up to his neck in water so that as even a small ripple would be enough to drown him. So even a, a, a small fluctuation in, 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 in his economic circumstances, it was the gendered language that he was using, would be enough to, um, to cause this, this poor peasant to, to, um, to starve. So there was a great vulnerability to famine. Um, now, today, the, the water level, as it were, has dropped with all the, the, these global changes, greater global prosperity, markets, etc., um, people across the world um, are much less vulnerable to being, as it were, underwater through, through <coughs> ripples. It takes a much bigger way. On the other hand, I think we can make an argument that actually these freak waves, these rogue waves, may be becoming less unlikely, let me put it that way, that through a combination of factors, through the greater turbulence of the, the, the global economy, the integration of the, of the global food economy, for example, um, through climate change and, 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 and the greater likelihood of extreme uh, natural adversities, through political turbulence and, and, and the possibilities of, greater possibilities of, of, of uh, major political dis disruptions, these sorts of, of, of rogue waves are, are, they're not exactly likely, but they are less unlikely. And given that famines are all, always rogue events, freak events, unlikely events, events that are intrinsically hard to predict, there is a, a, um, there's something that we need to be, to be very vigilant about. Uh, and we need to see if we can find that very holistic, integrated analysis across these different domains. Um, moving on, famines aren't caused by overpopulation. One of the most remarkable and enduring myths, I call it a zombie concept. It's a, it's a concept that you can kill off as many times as you like, but it still comes back to torment you. The, the zombie concept that somehow famines are related to overpopulation. I had a piece in the New York Times a couple of years ago in which I reproduced a lot of this evidence about the decline in famine, and I made the point it's nothing to do with overpopulation. Half the comments were, oh, it's really to do with overpopulation. Um, this, is a, this is a graph. That, that the black line is the, is, is the famine mortality graph. Um, that, that, that I've shown, the, 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 the green lines of uh, uh, world population increase. Um, famine mortality has gone down, world population has, has gone up. And you can do that for pretty much any country in the world. You can do that for the countries that historically have been most famine prone, like India, like Ethiopia, and you can show population has gone up and, and risks of, of famine and of famine mortality have, have, have come down. Um, however, there is a sort of there's a sort of nub of of insight in 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 the um, in that zombie concept, and the nub of insight is that um, we can't live beyond our planetary resources. Global warming is a fact. Um, 
if, if, if we consume natural resources, including farmland at the current rates, we are, we are going to face um, global crises in, in, in one way or another. Where I would, where my point of disagreement is I don't think the sharp end of this is going to be famine. And I don't think one can see a, any, um, the, the, either the climate element or the population element, as it were, at being the sharp end of causing famine. Where there is a, a, a very important set of questions that will, that, that will come before us globally very, very soon of how we manage uh, the, the unpredictabilities of, of associated with climate change and, 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 and the turbulent globalized world and the resource scarcities. But wherever we see acute hunger, wherever we see famine, the question to ask is not about population or climate. It is about how has the political decision been made so that such and such a population bears the burden of hardship and hunger? That is the question, because all the famines in, 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 in history have had at political action at their core, and that will continue to be the case of that, we can be very, very sure. Um, and, and, and this is an issue I will, I will come back to um, in, in the next point, which is famines are inflicted. Starvation is transitive. We can be, I think, more precise. And in this part of, of, of the book, I drew on, on, on the work of a lawyer called David Marcus, who some 15 years ago um, tried to classify what he called famineogenic acts, political acts that caused famine. And he suggested a fourfold classification, and, and, and I found it useful. So we have first-degree famineogenic acts. Governments or other authorities deliberately use famine as a tool of extermination. Something like the Nazi hunger plan would, would, would count as this. The, the, the million or so Armenians who were starved to death um, in, in, in the Armenian genocide, that would be a first degree famine crime. The, the extermination of the Herero in Namibia when, in 1904 when they were pushed out of their lands into the desert and died of hunger and thirst, that would be a first degree um, famine crime. Those fortunately are extremely rare, though the one, the, those that, that Stalin and Hitler perpetrated did, did kill very many millions of people. The second degree, this is by far the most interesting, and I will dwell on it in, 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 in a, a bit more in a moment. It's when a public authority, a government or a military authority, pursues a policy that's the principal cause of famine. It's not their intention to starve large numbers of people to death, but that is what happens, and they continue doing it regardless. So two contemporary examples um, spring to mind. One is South Sudan. It's not as though the government of South Sudan, or indeed the rebels, are seeking actually to exterminate populations through, through hunger, through starvation. It's just they don't really care either way. Um, sadly, this is, um, the, the same behavior was exhibited by the uh, successive governments in Khartoum over many, uh, many years. And, and similarly, in, in Yemen, I don't think that the, the Saudis and the Emiratis are intent on starving Yemen to death. However, that is not their priority. They have other political and military priorities, and they are doing really the minimum um, to, to, um, to prevent uh, an entirely preventable uh, famine in, 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 in that country. And sadly, 
I think Western countries, including my own, Britain and the United States, are, are doing far too little. Uh, because also, preventing famine in, in Yemen is not their priority. They have other um, priorities. So those, uh, and there's a lot of gradation in this, in, in this second degree um, famineogenic action, something I think that we can explore. Third degree is when public authorities are indifferent. Um, they may not have created famine, but they do rather little to, 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 to alleviate it. And the fourth degree is when they are simply incapable or incapacitated. And if we take a look at our 58 famines um, over the last nearly 150 years, what we see is the, the light gray are the, those are the genocidal famines. Those are from the, uh, the first one is Armenia, and then we have Stalin's and Hitler's famines and so on. Um, the, the fourth degree are the, uh, is, is the red. And the only recent one there is, is the Maharashtra famine of the 1970s. Those, those are the sort of natural disaster famines where there is very little political culpability. Um, overwhelmingly, we are talking about the second degree, the, the, uh, which is the dark gray color. Um, not only uh, in, 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 in the middle part of our history, but also recently. And, and if we look at the, the famine mortality, we see that 60-odd percent fall into that second degree um, of, of, of famineogenic action, second-degree famine crimes. Um, so, I mean, about um, uh, genocidal famines, about 8%. Um, so natural disasters and official indifference are really a, a, a small part of the story and, and, and really a part of a historical part of, 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 of the story. So if it is the case, as I'm arguing, that actually... Uh, it is political and military recklessness, disregard for human life that is overwhelmingly the cause of, of famines and, and, and deaths in famines throughout history and especially today. Then can we, what can we do uh, to prevent them? And um, it's interesting to look into the law. There is, a, there is quite some controversy about this. Um, and there are some key weaknesses historically in law. And if, if we go back to the end of World War I, we begin to understand why some of these weaknesses emerge. Because at the end of World War I, my country, Great Britain, not only maintained the blockade on a defeated Nazi Germany, uh, defeated uh, uh, Imperial Germany, but intensified that blockade so that in the six months after the 11th of November 1918, um, about 250,000 German children died needlessly of hunger because of, 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 of the British blockade, the British wanting the Germans to sign the, the, the Treaty of Versailles. And Britain being dominant in uh, dominant world power at that stage and, and, and having a very strong voice in, in international law and international humanitarian law did not want to prohibit starvation. Um, if we go forward, fast forward to 1945, um, there were and the many prosecutions in Nuremberg and the post-Nuremberg trials. There was, I only came across one case in which a German uh, uh, commander faced uh, 
charges associated with, with starvation, which was the commander of the forces responsible for the siege of Leningrad. And the prosecutors um, argued that he, that he, he had acted against uh, international humanitarian law by enforcing the siege of Leningrad by shelling civilians trying to leave. He was acquitted of that charge. The judges said, uh, we regret that he's acquitted, but we have to interpret the law as we find it, and that law does not prohibit starvation as an act of war. And I suspect one of the reasons why acts of starvation were not included in the charges of crimes against humanity in the Nuremberg Charter was that at that very time, the US Army Air Force was mining Japanese harbors, expecting a protracted war against Japan, and that operation was called Operation Starvation. Um, however, the, the law has since been strengthened. The 1977 uh, additional protocols to the Geneva Conventions and, 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 and various other uh, uh, parts and components of international humanitarian law very clearly may very clearly prohibit starvation as a, as a method of war. But it's never really been tested in court, and there have been several opportunities to do so. Um, there was an opportunity in Ethiopia with the special prosecutor on the, using domestic legislation, uh, which was not pursued. There was an opportunity in the, uh, the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia um, when the, the uh, Bosnian Serb general responsible for the siege of Sarajevo was being prosecuted. There was an opportunity with the extraordinary chambers for Cambodia. But in none of these cases was, what was it pursued. And there are a number of reasons why. And, uh, and part of the reason was that some of the prosecutors had, had, I think, a very rudimentary understanding of what an act of starvation might be. So that in the case of the the siege of Sarajevo, the, the charges weren't pressed on the grounds that it was impossible to prove that particular individuals had died of starvation because of the actions of the, um, of, of the besieging forces. I would argue that's insufficient. Um, that's way too high a, a standard of proof. If, if a besieging force is actually starving in the active, um, transitive sense of trying to inflict suffering on, on, on a population, that should be enough. Um, in the case of, of uh, Cambodia and Ethiopia, the prosecutors felt they were under pressure to get convictions, and quick convictions. And it was much easier to get those uh, perpetrators who were in the dock um, found guilty of well-established crimes like, like, like murder. Um, massacring people rather than trying out new law. And the reason I suspect why they didn't do that, well, I think the reason is clear, is there was no pressure, public pressure, on them to do so. Let, let me make a, a, a comparison with, with uh, sexual and gender-based violence, rape as a war crime. Rape has always been prohibited in war, even if you go back to, to, um, to Grotius. It was, it was one of the very expansive uh, definition of what's permissible in war. Rape has always been outlawed, but it was only prosecuted when enough people of constituencies like ours got up and said, this is unacceptable. And, and so there was reason why prosecutors would bring cases in tribunals in, in, in former Yugoslavia, the, ICC or in domestic courts. 
And I think it's that kind of outcry that is necessary now to say, okay, we don't need to revise the law, we just need to care about this issue enough. Now, there are a number of issues that would, practical and moral issues that would arise with criminalizing um, starvation. One of them, obviously, being that if you are a humanitarian worker in a place like South Sudan today, your access is difficult enough. Your operating circumstances are pretty dangerous. Um, and if those who, are, who have the power of life and death over you and the populations you're trying to, to serve think you may, as well as being a humanitarian, might actually also be a witness for the prosecution, your life is going to be even more difficult. Um, there are, if, if we were to talk about bringing charges against um, uh, the, the Syrian government, against Bashar al-Assad, might it not complicate the, the peace talks also, uh, such as they are in, 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 in Syria. But I would argue that we shouldn't get too hung up on these specific issues. Um, in many cases, yes, we would, you would want to stand back from, uh, from making too much noise about the criminalization of starvation for practical reasons. But I think um, the, the object of the exercise is not to get the villains in court or not to get them in prison. That would be desirable in many cases. But the object of the exercise is actually to make starvation one of those activities like chemical weapons that are so toxic that they are hardly ever used. Not that they will never be used, but they are the sort of, of action that no commander or, or politician will undertake without really thinking, am I doing something really terrible here that is against very, very basic ethical issues? And so I think there's a parallel also there with the, 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 the moral outrage that, that there is against the use of, of, of chemical weapons. However, there's a question that I haven't got my head around yet, which is that if the main problem isn't sort of genocidal starvation, but starvation through recklessness, um, then it's, it's, it's actually a little bit more difficult to figure out how one would um, frame, these, um, re frame these charges. And I think this is an issue on which I look forward to some discussions with lawyers. So um, just concluding, really, um, how to generate the political will and the public clamor to, to, to make this happen. I think there's a, a number of obstacles, um, a number of challenges that we have. The continuing grip of that image of famine as a natural disaster. Um, the cynical geostrategic power politics, um, the weakening of the United Nations and the sort of liberal humanitarian world order. And, and, and the fears that you know, um, with future scarcities, et cetera, we will see zero-sum politics emerging and, and, and famine somehow being legitimized through a narrative that says, well, it's the outcome of um, mismanagement of resources and, and, and some people being in, 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 in the wrong place. Against this, I would say that actually this is an issue which, ha which does not have a, 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 a singular political constituency. This is an issue which unites everyone across the spectrum. This is an issue on which, obviously, you know, liberals can, can feel passionate, but it's also an issue on which conservatives and, um, can, can, can feel very passionate. 
because, not least because the, the, the greatest famine criminals of the 20th century were, were, were communists. Um, and, 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 and it's a, a very fundamental um, common ethical issue, I, I, I would argue, across the political spectrum. So this could be an issue, I think, that, that unlocks a, 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 a bipartisan consensus um, about the need for international ethical action. Um, this is my last slide, my, my, my manifesto for ending mass starvation. Um, our ultimate goal is to render mass starvation so morally toxic that it is universally publicly vilified. We should aim to make mass starvation unthinkable such that political and military leaders in a position, of con in a position to inflict it or fail to prevent it will unhesitatingly ensure it does not occur and the public will demand it of them. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alex. My, my book uh, is well-worn. I really enjoyed reading it. And my first question to you is, you know, you've been doing this for so long. Is, is your book that you wrote 20 years ago, Famine Crimes, how has your thinking evolved? Um, it's a different, as you make it clear, we're in a different day and age. Um, so what's changed in your own thinking compared to the book you wrote 20 years ago compared to this book? Um, the, I mean, the, there are a couple of elements in, in, in famine crimes that I think stand the test of time and some that don't. Um, the, the ones that do are, I think, that the, that the foundation of, of famine prevention is a political contract, a, a, an understanding, an enforceable political social understanding. Um, I framed it in, in, in famine crimes very much nationally, but I think it, it, we need to move regionally and internationally. All the famines that we're talking about now have international dimensions. Um, the other element related to that is, is that I, I argue that famines are caused politically, and obviously my views have, have, on that have not changed. Where my views have changed is that the... Um, I, I'm much more positive about the humanitarian business, the, humanita the humanitarians. I was very critical of them 20 years ago for what I felt was a, a hubristic idea that they could solve famines. Mm. Now, then, now the humanitarians are very clear. There are no humanitarian solutions to humanitarian problems. And in the meantime, the, the actual professional efficacy of humanitarians, as well as their sort of greater moral awareness, their awareness or moral and political awareness, that their, their technical efficacy has so Im much improved, although they are the first to criticize it, I would say, just look at that progress. So I, I, mm -hmm. I'm um, much more positive on that. Yeah, you know, in, in the book, um, I'm sorry I don't have this as a slide and those in the room will be able to see it because it's so dramatic. One of his graphs is he's talking about international relief and humanitarian um, response. It's talking about the amount of funding. So this graph is, it just goes from here to here. That's all you really need to see. But um, it shows how official humanitarian assistance has skyrocketed. So it went from 128 million 
1970 to 28 billion, so I'm not messing those up, I do that sometimes, but 128 million to, in 1970 to 28 billion in 2015. So you talked about this a little bit um, just now, but I just wanted to probe a little bit deeper if you can talk about the nexus between humanitarian aid and transactional politics, as you call it. Mm. You know, how is some of that political decision-making influence um, humanitarian aid? Well, I think one of, the, one of the shortcomings of the humanitarian aid model that we have is, is its financing. I mean, it is the mm. most rudimentary form of financing. It, it, it's, it's like having, it, it's medieval. It's, it's, it's like beggars lining up outside the cathedral or mosque, and we, you know, we, we go and we give a penny to this one. We don't like the face of that one, so we, you know, we don't give him any money, and then we run out of money before we get to the end of the line. And, and it is in, 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 in an e age in which we have the most sophisticated financial instruments for you know, hedging against all sorts of risk, how come we are still using this, this model? Um, because not, not only is it incredibly inefficient and, 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 and usually late and therefore you know, financially inefficient, but it makes it, it, it is extremely easy to be manipulated for all sorts of, of, of uh, political reasons. And there are um, there's some very interesting explorations by the World Bank and others of, of how you can have insurance against natural disasters and so on, which would be very effective. In, in, in countries that are exposed to primarily climatic risks. Uh, Ethiopia would be a good example. Uh, India, another example. Um, the, those won't work for wars. So we need, um, so the, we have a real problem of, 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 of having a, a different um, financing model for, for conflict and politically related Famines, which of course are, are, are the majority. Yeah. Well, how about within that humanitarian space? Let's talk about U.S. leadership. Um, you make several points in the book about, I would say, the power and the influence that the U.S. government has as a donor, and how it's, it's um, how that influence has been both positive or negative in several different mm. famines throughout the historical context. So, so give us a few examples in terms of history of how U.S food aid or policies has made a difference, good or bad. Um, and then just your thoughts on the current administration and leadership and any changes that, you've, that you see or predict in terms of our humanitarian leadership. Well, there are a couple of very bad examples. Um, one, Somalia, which I mentioned, which really has to be a, a, a dark stain on the previous administration. Um, another is, 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 is uh, Bangladesh in 1974, and we have the expert on this, Naomi Hussain, here. When the, uh, the administration of the day um, cut back on, on food aid to Bangladesh at a time when it critically needed it. Um, I think that the really interesting positive example is, is, is from the, the Bush administration, where the uh, incoming uh, uh, USAID administrator, Andrew Natsios, interpreted the, the, the president's instructions to mean no famine on my watch and instructed AID officials around the world that it should be an overriding obligation for them to, if they saw in the threat of actual 
famine, starvation. They should act and, 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 and act directly and, and bypass whatever channels. And it was, and, and there were, during that, um, uh, during the administration, there, there were a couple of instances where that actually, where, where that actually happened. And I think this is, and this is something that this administration could take on, should it, um, should it want to. I think the, uh, clearly there is a, um, the, the, the issue of humanitarian assistance and humanitarian funding is probably the least controversial the, of all the you know, foreign assistance related spending. Um, however, it's, uh, it, it will only be effective if in places where there, are, there, there is uh, actual or imminent famine, such as Yemen, the administration is ready to override other political and security priorities and, 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 and really say humanity overrides um, what other interests we might have, and there's no sign of that in, certainly in Yemen. What about, you know, in, in my bubble, which is mostly agricultural development, we talk a lot about the need to increase food production. Um, and you make it clear in your book that food is just one small part of sort of the natural resource consumptions that we have to worry about. You do talk about market disruptions and how that can make a famine worse. Um, but you say global food production will outpace population growth well into the middle decades of the century. So my question to you is, how would you advise us to talk about the importance of increasing production and the importance of agriculture and markets so we're not being alarmist, but so we're also being um, factual of the influence that it has? I, I, I think the, the, the principal issues are, are, are issues of equity. Mm -hmm. So that, um, I mean, it, it's not much good to the world's poor and the people who may be at risk of famine if the, 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 product, the, the agricultural production, the, the, uh, the increases in agricultural production are all for beef, for example. Mm. Uh, that, that really isn't gonna do uh, much good to well, um, to, to, to the, the entitlement to, to food for people who, who, who are at risk. So I think um, disaggregating that um, and, and getting away from the, 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 the overall global figure of, of, of production is important. I'm, I'm concerned that one of, the, one of the stories that is easily told is the agribusiness story of we have a growing world population, therefore we must you know, apply all our technology to um, various forms of, 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 of increased agricultural efficiency. Now there's nothing wrong with increased agricultural efficiency, but, the, um, but there is, but that's missing the point that actually the, 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 the world hunger problem and even more the world famine problem are issues of distribution and, and, and politics rather than production. I, the same question around climate change, right? So we, we want to be honest that it's real, but we don't want to be sensationalist about causality with mm. it. Um, so any additional advice? I mean, you talked about it in your presentation, but um, when it comes to climate change, how do we talk about it in a way that, that you feel would be most accurate and, and efficient? I think the, the key point is, is, is that climate change is one key factor in, 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 in these freak waves, these rogue waves that can, that can put certain populations um, um, underwater. 
And, and there's also going to be a stress on, on, on food and, 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 and water systems more, more generally. But the, the, the key challenge, I mean, let, let's hope we can see off these denialists. You know. But let's, not, let's see beyond the denialists. Let's, see, let, let's look to a, a, a situation in which the reality of climate change is accepted, but we're faced with the challenge of how do we govern a world that is characterized by unpredictability and scarcity, given that all our democratic liberal institutions all came into being in a world of an expanding frontier, where we could always take, take more resources, either geographically you could expand, you know, or more recently, more intensively exploit. If we're, how do we govern, as it were, a long emergency in a democratic way so that when these hardships happen, we, do, we, we don't find ourselves sucked into a zero-sum politics of saying, I'm going to grab these resources for myself and you know, the other people can go to hell. Because that, that is the route to, to, to famine. Zero-sum politics plus xenophobia. Then we will have famine. And, it, and, 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 we, and, and we can blame climate change, but the real culprit will be politics. Mm -hmm. It always comes back to politics. Right. Um, you know, when we had you here for the panel we did on famines back in September, you made the argument you felt like it was four famines plus one, mm. meaning Syria. Yep. And um, our panelists from Kamanic said, no, four plus one, it's Ethiopia. How do you feel today? Do you still feel that it's four famines plus Syria? Is Ethiopia, DRC, um, should mm. they be up there? Which are the countries you're most concerned about? Um, I, DRC should, should, should certainly be there. Syria should Mm -hmm. be there, the forced starvation in Syria, and, and, and the, the kinds of dislocations that will, that, um, that, that are likely to occur during this, what looks like an, an another new ugly phase of this war. Um, yes, Sir, Syria needs to be there, DRC needs to be there. Um, Ethiopia is interesting and important. Ethiopia is, is, is a country that has historically been desperately food insecure. That in 2015-2016 faced a national food crisis of a magnitude that had it turned into a famine would have dwarfed all the others just in terms of the number of the people uh, effect, uh, affected. Fortunately, it didn't happen. Um, the principal reason for that was the Ethiopian government responded effectively and expeditiously and then was backed up by uh, a strong international response. Um, the Ethiopian success is fragile. Now, the, the, and I think the fragility of that success is down to two factors. One is the, just the intrinsic problem of Ethiopia being a very large, very poor country with very poor infrastructures obviously developing fast, but it's still, it, you know, there's a lot of very poor and vulnerable people. But also the, the commitment to preventing famine is very real within the leadership of, of, of the ruling party. Um, it comes from their own experience in the 1980s um, when they saw famine inflicted on their own people, um, from their national security policy, which sees famine as one of the major threats to national security. Um, but it is not, um, if you compare it, say, with India, where the, the commitment to famine is a true democratically entrenched commitment. We don't have that in Ethiopia. 
so that um, if, if the calculation of, 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 of the ruling party were to change, the situation could change very, very rapidly. And, 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 and their success could unravel. Mm -hmm. um, there's an entire chapter voted to Ethiopia in the book. And I do want to mention we have the books for sale right outside. But it's also on Amazon already, if, if you're interested. Um, I'm going to go ahead and turn to the audience now. I have more questions than I ever have for an event because I could talk to Alex for a long time about this. Um, but I do want to hear from you um, to see what questions and comments or thoughts you have based on, on Alex's presentation. Let's come right over here to the side. Yes. They're giving you a mic. And if you can please stand up and give your name and organization, particularly for our online audience. Thank you. Uh, Kathy Cosman, retired. Um, I had a couple of questions about Stalin. Um, it seems to me your, your statistics are low. Um, for one thing, in, as part of the war eff effort, um, Stalin deported 15 nationalities, um, most of them Muslim majority. Um, half of, at least half of each of those 15 nationalities died, um, mainly of, of famine during deportation. Um, and then, of course, the forced uh, starvation also went on to Kazakhstan, where several million more died. Um, that's one question. The other is, you started with that very tragic picture of Auschwitz. But, you know, Stalin also used forced hunger in the labor camps. And there, the, the estimates of people as part of his class, so-called class struggle, you know, which of course preceded the Second World War, goes way into the millions, some say as high as 20. Thank you. Thank you. If you can just pass the microphone right over there to the man in the glasses. Yes, thank you so much. Again, if you can stand up. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Lawrence Freeman, I'm a political economic analyst for Africa for about 30 years. And I wanted to just concentrate on some of the idea of the Africa uh, question of famine and starvation. If we put genocide aside, because genocide is the intentional killing of a people and using food as a weapon, there is no real reason you would have a famine in Africa or hunger at all. I mean, if you look at the level of acreage that's available, it's the largest percentage in the world, about 60% of arable land not yet cultivated, the river systems. So wouldn't it be a better idea, instead of simply taking USID and humanitarian money, which is in the hundreds of billions, and put it into infrastructure. If you have energy, railroads, roads, refrigeration cars, distribution, uh, you not only eliminate hunger, which I think is entirely possible in Africa, but Africa would become a net food exporter. So wouldn't, and now people say you can't do that, we don't have the money, who, but here we do have the money. We, governments give money for aid. So wouldn't this be maybe a better way and a long-term effect of, uh, I believe hunger can be completely eliminated in Africa. Uh, just one point of information, when you're talking about Ethiopia, you're talking about Megistu and the Deres regime in Ethiopia in the 80s that carried out the hunger. And you're saying that there was an actual trial or investigation uh, internationally against Megistu for alleging uh, what he did in terms of, of starvation and famine as a deliberate policy of the dirge. I didn't, I wasn't familiar with all that history. Okay, thanks. We'll take one more comment or question before we, let's go ahead and right here in the very front. Thanks. Uh, Gene Dewey, uh, former State Department and United Nations. 
Uh, you credited the uh, Bush administration 43 for no famine on my watch. But I think you neglected a big problem of that period, and I'd be interested in your comments on it. And that is that uh, there was a tendency for the more, the more the U.S. gave uh, through the World Food Program, the more the Nazis period gave, there was a tendency for other countries and organizations to do less, including your own country to some extent, but much more the European Union to do far less. In other words, we were funding during that period on an average of two-thirds of all the food costs for the food needs, the emergency food needs around, around the world. Uh, I spent a lot of time in Afghanistan, and there we were doing 80%. And the other countries, particularly the European Union, were really happy to see that, because that meant they could do a lot less. At least they interpreted that they could do a lot less. And I think we're seeing a little bit of that today with the four famines. We credit David Beasley, the new head of the World Food Program, of being successful in raising food from his own country, the United States, and he is doing a good job. But again, I think we're going to see that relaxation of laggard states and organizations like the EU, again, of doing far less and meaning that the overall contribution is going to be less and certainly far less than what is needed. Appreciate your comments on that. Thank you very much. No, some lighthearted, okay. easy questions. Okay. Feel free. <laughs> okay, first of all, on, on, the, on the Stalin issue, um, everywhere we went for the lowest credible figures. And so, uh, and, and I welcome any, you know, anyone who, 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 who can provide me with better figures. I didn't, I mean, I, I started with the, the Nazis rather than with, with Stalin because it's a particularly compelling um, starting point for this story. But, but you know, overall, there's, you know, Stalin's famine in, in the, the famine of the, the early 1930s, I, I would see as, as, first of all, a collectivization famine, which was then intensified in Ukraine with, you know, with, with overtly arguably genocidal intent, which, um, and, and also the, de the deportations um, are, 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 are clearly a, a major issue. I haven't, we didn't include the, the, the labor camps, and that's a, that's an, um, maybe we should, yes. Um, um, I, 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 in, in doing this, I, one of, the, one, one of the lessons I learned was why no one had tried to do this exercise before, <laughs> because it's, it, it really, it, it, it's an exercise in encroaching on other people's areas of expertise and, and always finding new, um, new facts. And, and actually, at the end of the day, we just had to say, okay, let's get this book out rather than, rather than spending any more time. And poor Aditya was always being forced to follow up on, on, on famines in Persia and China and, and that, 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 we, that, we, that we weren't aware of. And, we, and I guess in addition to, we will, <laughs> you probably won't volunteer for this task. We'll get someone else. Um, the, the issue of, 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 of Africa. Um, the specific problematic that, that we posed for this, this book was not hunger in general, was not agriculture in general. It was 
these specific episodes of famine. And some of the types of, of policies, development policies, food policies, nutrition policies that address famine, uh, uh, sorry, that address general hunger and agricultural production will have an impact on famine. That's where they, you know, they lower the water level, going back to the Chinese peasants and, and, and the level of water. But the, um, but the specific thing I want to draw attention to is not actually that overall water level. It is the, the freak waves, what causes the waves. And the, the, you know, the reality is however much we invest in agriculture and development, we are not investing in, 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 in getting rid of those, those, um, those freak waves. Um, and, 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 and so we need to, we need to identify, we, we need to work on, as it were, the hard, sharp politics and the military politics of, 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 of what causes famine. I'm not saying we shouldn't deal with this. There's other issues that you, that you rightly point to. Well, well, famine had been eliminated in Syria. Hunger, there was, I mean, Syria was a, re, was a remarkable success story in terms of overall nutrition until five years ago, six years ago. Um, your point about the European Union, my, uh, in a couple of weeks I'm going on a European book tour and this, I'm going to make precisely your point I'm in, in, in Brussels in The Hague because, um, it's, it's, it, your, your point is valid. Yeah. Yeah. What about, Alex, for people who are coming to this topic maybe for the first time? Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe they're young in their career, but also for those um, who are you know, well into their career and have very influential jobs as policymakers, what sort of uh, advice or steps do you think they can take to give that public outcry that you're looking for? Right, and so whether it's an, an ordinary citizen, so to speak, or whether it's an influential policymaker, you know, what steps do you hope people take? Is it about the criminalization? Is it what is what is most important? To you? I think um, I think it's an it, one of the it, it's a, this is an issue that has so many dimensions, and 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 one of the one of the things that I found interesting in 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 taking it to its historical dimension. And talking about you know, the, the the use of starvation against the Armenians or, or, or by the Nazis or, 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 or by Stalin, is that it, it unlocks a whole set of constituencies and interests and and, and, and sort of social and cultural resonances and messages that are very powerful. So you know we don't want to be in the same category as you know. As, 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 as Pol Pot or, or as the North Koreans, you know, in, in, in um, or, you know, and, and we don't want to repeat our, you know, mistakes from, you know, 1918, 1919, when we were, you know, when the British felt it was quite justifiable, justifiable to punish a, you know, defeated adversary by starving. Um, so I think there are, the, 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 it's, it, there are, you know, narrow political messages to do with this is wrong, this, this should be stopped in such and such a case, like in, 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 in Yemen being the, the, the most salient one at the moment. Um, but there are, and the, the messages that the, that the, the lawyers can take forward. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then I, th I think we can take the, the, 
the, the broader sort of societal conversation rooted in history mm -hmm. forward as well. And, 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 and that can you know, play many notes that can resonate with many different people. Yeah, let's turn back to the audience um, for questions. We have the man right here in the tie, Admiral Hall. Yes, yes. <laughs> Thank you for that excellent uh, discussion. And also, please say hello to my classmate, Admiral Stavridis, when you go back to the Fletcher School. I'm Gary Hall. I'm a senior director on the National Security Council and a world-famous helicopter pilot. I uh, have all the portfolios that you've discussed. I love many of the analogies you'd use. So what I want to do is give you an open invitation to come to the National Security Council at any time so that we could take and operationalize uh, some of the academic discussions you've had. And also, I wanted to point out that our National Security Strategy Pillar 4 addresses the human rights and uh, all these uh, issues. So the administration, one year into it, is working on this. I appreciate the former uh, State Department's official comments on the economies of this. I would like, I love your uh, description of the Chinese peasant. I would say that uh, humanitarian assistance will not solve the problem, but it will immediately lower the water level and we call that resilience, and then agricultural development is going to, on a longer term, is going to lower it even more. Uh, and so I want to talk more about that with you uh, personally. And then, of course, the wave at top is the political uh, aspect which we're working. The other observation that I wanted to make is that I feel, Gary Hall feels, that Yemen is in the first degree of uh, famonomics, uh, that, that they're being directly starved, and that comes from a perspective, not from academics, but those on the ground and from the intelligence community. Uh, also, um, I want to point out that in Africa, uh, 20% or 20 bushels of Let's get you a different microphone for our online audience if that one's not working. Let's try a different one. Thanks, Gary. That in Africa, an acre produces 20 bushels of corn, where here in the United States it uh, develops uh, 200 uh, um, bushels of corn. So uh, the future of famine and food insecurity is going to be in Africa. So I just wanted to give you my insights on that and also give you that standing uh, invitation and I appreciated all your analogies. Thank you. Thank you so much. Let's go to the far back over here and then our last question will be right here in the front. Thank you, Alex. I'm Jason Mattis with AECOM. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about the role of mobility as a means for reducing uh, famine, considering the number of people displaced in the world fleeing areas in famine, and the given trends around countering migration in particular. Thank you. Great. The last question will be the man right up here, Elizabeth. Yes, hi, uh, Joel Charney from the Norwegian Refugee Council. Alex, I, I have to admit, when I saw you were out with, I, 25 years ago, I, worked for, I was working for an organization that basically was in the dock when you, uh, when you wrote Famine Crime. So I was thinking, uh-oh, Alex is back with another book. So I'm actually relieved that you're, uh, that you're somewhat more optimistic about the effectiveness of the humanitarian sector. But my, my question is, um, I could use a few more minutes on the, on the legal dimension. Because I, I do believe we have common agreement that famine is unacceptable. I mean, it, this is one of the last bipartisan issues in this town. In, in the case of Yemen, the Saudis have actually had to invent a humanitarian plan over the last couple weeks 
to kind of show that yes, we care in Yemen, but in this atmosphere of impunity and loss of uh, confidence in institutions, how do, how do we practically, or how do we move this legal issue in, in a way that would be meaningful because the, the legal stuff tends to be kind of victor's justice. Is, is there any way that we can move the, the legal aspect in, in real time to make a difference? Thank you. That's a great question to end on as well. So um, thank you for your invitation, Anna, and we will, I will be delighted to, to follow up on that. I think that's, um, mobility. Um, the one thing I didn't mention is that the demographics of famine, the greatest demographic impact of famine isn't mortality, it's migration. In the short term, over a short distance, in the long term, over a long distance. And one of the points that I made to a London audience last week is um, don't think that uh, the famine in Yemen is not going to have consequences for migration to Europe. Because every, every indication is that when that blockade is finally lifted, when the Yemenis can be mobile, we will start receiving them uh, in, through the Mediterranean. Um, and that should be ringing alar uh, alarm bells. So that... Um, it's interesting if you take the statement made by um, the, the head of UNOCHA a year ago um, that we are facing the greatest humanitarian crisis since World War II. In terms of mortality, of course, it's not the case. But in terms of migration, it is. And, and, and one of the, uh, and, and of course, there are many reasons why um, the, 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 the center of gravity of the impact of famine has shifted from mortality to migration, including ease of migration, including the, uh, for all sorts of reasons, and, and, and also including the fact that people aren't dying in, 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 in millions. Thank goodness. But, it, but we, haven't, um, we haven't wrapped our, our, our heads around at all what this um, uh, what this migration crisis uh, means, given particularly that the, the great majority of the, those who are affected or are migrate, migrating will only move to the next country. So the South Sudanese are you know, moving to North Sudan, to, to, to Uganda, et cetera. Um, um, the next legal step. There is some discussion at the, uh, among the uh, the the um, members of the UN Security Council about having a, a resolution on, on, on this topic. And, I, and there are pros and cons to it. I mean, and, and, and the big obvious argument against is that you don't want to just have another procedure at the UN Security Council which, which pushes it to a committee and, the, and, 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 and in which um, those members of the Security Council that are really not interested in solving this problem, that you know, don't have a humanitarian you know, spark 
can just say, okay, we've dealt with it because it's, it, 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 it's being dealt with by this, this procedure, et cetera. Um, so I would have misgivings about that if it, unless it is constructed in the right way. I think one of the challenges that we have is, is, is framing this as an issue so that it's not just an issue of uh, Western countries, be they in, in, which are liberal in the broader sense. You know, so obviously it's a bipartisan issue here in this town. But, um, and, and, and it's an issue in, in Europe. But we don't want it to be floated as an issue in a way such that the you know, countries like China, like India, like like Ethiopia say, well, this isn't our agenda. You know, this is an agenda being pushed against us for stigmatizing us or whatever. It needs to be crafted in, 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 in that consensual way. But I don't think any of that should stand in the way of exploring the law, exploring what are the legal options in, in, in places where there are really the most outrageous famine crimes and, 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 and bringing, people, um, bringing people to court, maybe in good time, I mean, it doesn't have to happen immediately, and there are plenty of cases that are that you know that are um, actually or potentially under un, under the purview of international courts of one form or another, where cases, old cases, could be brought, precedents could be um, um, could be made. I think we just need to. One of the things to do is 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 to put our legal minds together to see how we how we can pursue this, but fundamentally. I think what will drive it is, is, is public outrage. Hmm. Last question. Um, particularly with the reversal of progress we saw in 2017, which I'm sure will endure into 2018, how hopeful are you that we really can eliminate famines in our lifetime ever? Um, it's remarkably hard to create <laughs> a famine. Mm -hmm. it, it, it takes a lot of hard work and determination to starve people. Um, uh, and you have to be really bad to do it. <laughs> and and it, 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 it doesn't take much to stop it. Mm. So it can be done. And, 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 and it, it, it's one of those achievements that, that, that if properly framed, could be, could be grasped and owned and possessed by any number of, 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 of political actors of any political shape. Mm -hmm. It can be done. Excellent. Great note to end on. Thank you so much, Alex, for coming yeah. back to CSIS. Thank you.